This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're birthing our way into episode number 48. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi. This is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I was thinking just this morning that it's been about two years since I started this podcast, and I've missed some weeks here and there, but for the most part, I've been really steady. At first, we were every two weeks, and now I'm really trying to work on getting a weekly podcast out. In two years of podcasting, that's just pretty incredible. I've enjoyed it. I think the podcast is one of my favorite things to do because you are just so willing to leave me feedback. A lot of you come to the main website, naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and you leave me a comment or you send me a comment via the contact form, and I just love reading those comments and knowing how the podcast is impacting your life. So I want to thank you for how for how much your feedback on the podcast has helped me in my life and how much teaching you every two weeks and now every week has really helped me grow And so just thank you for being a listener. Thank you for sharing with friends and family and girlfriends that you find out are expecting. And thank you for having your hubbies listen to episodes. I get a lot of comments like that too. And I'm glad to know that I'm helping the whole family. So just thank you for two years of podcasting. Today, we're going to talk about what we didn't get to last week. I had planned to do a Q&A on pregnancy and birth complications last week, and the pregnancy complications section just ended up going pretty long, so I didn't want to try and add the birth complications on. I don't actually have as many questions about birth complications as I did about pregnancy complications, so I'm hoping that I can get through every question instead of just grouping them into general categories like I've been doing with the other questions. So I'll start with the first one and just move through all of them. In one of your birth stories, you said it took a while for your placenta to come out. They gave me an IV to make mine come out faster. Why is this? They said something about it being a risk of hemorrhaging. And what do midwives usually do? If you haven't read my birth stories, they're all on my website. So you can go to naturalbirthandbabycare.com um, and then there's actually a box on the side of the page that says birth stories. If you go to like the blog or the podcast page, it's not on the home page, so you'll have to click into an internal page on the home page. But it's on the sidebar of all posts and articles, and you can click that box uh, and that says, I think it says inspiring natural births. And my birth stories are at the top, so you can read those. Or if you download the PDF, the ebook of the birth stories, my stories are the first stories. And in one of them, I did mention that the placenta took a while to come out. I th- I think that was Cassidy's birth, but I can't really remember having a super fast placenta with any of my babies. But I think Cassidy's was the one where it took the longest that I can remember. When I'm paying attention to the baby, the time, it seems kind of timeless, so it's hard to tell without going back and looking at my midwife's notes from every birth. But it is pretty common for the placenta not to come right away. Now, what you experienced with the placenta and the Pitocin injection is what's called an actively managed third stage of labor. And we actually talked about this on some of the podcasts that I did. I think they were the September podcasts, especially the one 
where I talked about physiological birth, which may not be an attractive title, so maybe not as many people listen to that as they should, but the reality is is that's probably one of the most important podcast episodes I've ever done, so I'll link to that in the show notes. And it explains how the third stage of labor works, and it also explains what's typically done. So in a managed third stage, which the third stage is when the placenta is being born. So the baby's already come, and the third stage is waiting for the placenta to be born. So the baby is in your arms, and in a managed third stage, there may be fundal massage, aggressive fundal massage done, and your fundus is your uterus. So fundal massage means that somebody, a nurse usually, is massaging the fundus. There may be cord traction applied, which means that your OB or a midwife, if you're at a hospital, is applying usually gentle, but not always, uh, pressure on the cord to kind of try and pull and encourage the placenta to come. And usually, if you haven't had a Pitocin drip, they give you an injection of Pitocin at this time. If you've been on a Pitocin drip, they'll usually do what they call going wide open, where they just turn it on so lots of Pitocin comes. And the theory with this actively managed third stage is that by doing all these things, they make the placenta come really fast, which means that the uterus can firm up like it's supposed to, and it means that postpartum hemorrhage is less of a risk. I mean, there's there's some evidence that this can be effective, but the reason that it's effective is because the natural process, the natural physiology, and the natural safety of birth has been interrupted continuously from the get-go. So what is normally supposed to happen, if we were talking about a completely undisturbed birth, is that mom would greet baby, and maybe baby would be up in your arms, or maybe there would be a moment where you're just looking at baby while he or she is resting on a mat under you, and you're ca- you're both catching your breath. That like that little split second pause, or you know, 30, 60 seconds, or whatever, where mom and baby catch their breath, actually happens in a lot of births where. It's undisturbed. And then mama kind of touches baby and begins to feel baby and uh, essentially get to know baby with her fingers and then picks up the baby. And what's happening while all of that's going on is incredible levels of hormones are building, primarily oxytocin. Uh, And so these hormones are just building up to high levels, so high that it's a lifetime high. You'll never have an oxytocin surge as high as you will in the moments after your baby's birth. And oxytocin is the primary hormone that causes the uterus to contract. And so the oxytocin receptors in the uterus, they react to all of that oxytocin that's flowing and the uterus begins to contract. And the placenta shears off the wall of the uterus and the contractions completely cut off the uterine arteries that were feeding the placenta with the blood that nourished your baby and the placenta during pregnancy. That's all cut off as the uterus is contracting and the placenta is born and comes out and generally baby is still attached to the placenta in a natural birth situation. It may not happen instantaneously in this case. So it's it's pretty normal for it to take a half hour, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour the, the normal course of action for a baby and a mother who are undisturbed is for baby to be gathered up into the arms and then mom and baby just to study each other and there's no aggressive effort or focused purposeful effort towards getting the baby to latch on or anything like that. 
The baby is just there and exploring and maybe resting. When researchers have watched babies for the first hour to see what they do undisturbed, they notice that there are several periods where baby is wide awake and alert and looking at mama. And then there's also times when baby just seems to be resting because birth is a big event for a little baby and for a mama. And then the baby licks and nuzzles and smells. And finally, baby works his or her own way onto the breast. And that usually takes right around 60 minutes to go through all of those steps. Uh, If you look up research on the golden hour, I might can link to some of it. They've done research and I think there's nine or 10 steps to get to that final latch on. And all of that, all of gazing into baby's eyes, smelling baby's head, um, baby nuzzling like you've seen a kitten or a puppy nuzzle and knead at its mother's teats, the that happens with a human baby too. I mean, all of that is happening and all of that sends oxytocin signals to your body and all of that primes the placenta to come, keeps the uterus contracting. I mean, there's incredible safety in that. And But the problem for most women is that entire process is usually circumvented early in labor. There's compelling evidence that giving Pitocin to start labor or to augment labor, that means to make it stronger and work better in layman's terms, giving oxytocin or Pitocin or Syntocin or any of the synthetic oxytocins to do that actually overrides the uterus's natural oxytocin receptors. So even if the Pitocin drip was turned off, the body is overwhelmed and may not respond to its own oxytocin, creating greater risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Having Pitocin or Syntocin or any of the other names it goes by during labor increases the risk of postpartum hemorrhage, and this has been proven. So, and then there are other things. I mean, everything like from bright lights and lots of chatting people and forced pushing, all of that circumvents this natural third stage, which is why some midwives like Rachel Reed argue that for most women who are giving birth in those conditions, an actively managed third stage may be the best option. But if you're able to give birth undisturbed, and some women can do it in the hospital. I've, I had one student in particular who she had the lights down low and she was just doing her thing. She had uh, advocated for herself and she had a hep lock in but no IV. So she was just able to do her thing and nature kicked in, the fetal ejection reflex kicked in, and that baby came so fast that the nurse was able to catch the baby in the darkened room, but the obstetrician had no chance of getting there in time, and everything just went real smoothly. But usually in an average hospital birth, and any even in many home births, there's a lot of active management going on, and there's a lot of intervention And for those moms, there may be a lot of bleeding and there may be things that are causing the uterus not to work the way it's supposed to. So to say that, the the way that you stop postpartum bleeding or lower the risk of postpartum bleeding, and I have heard some midwives share that even in in the most perfect birth, a mom was bleeding a lot. And there may be other factors going on for her. So I don't think that you should always say, okay, it's always going to 100% work out perfectly. And that's one of the reasons why we've usually chosen to have a midwife present. We had one where our baby came before the midwife got there. But, you know, we've chosen to have a midwife who knows when to sit on her hands and when to get up and get in there. And thankfully for us, she's always sat on her hands. And I think that a lot of our preparation and stuff and the way that we 
work with our birthing time and with our baby and the environment that we, we create goes a long way towards that. But gosh, I'm really thankful to have a midwife there when she's needed. So I'm not saying there's never any intervention needed. But for almost all women, preserving a normal, natural, quiet labor. So if you picture how you're going to get things ready for your dog or your cat to labor, a warm, quiet area where you keep the little ones away from, that's that's kind of an ideal for you too. You need those same things to create safety in your birth. And that's what's really going to prevent postpartum hemorrhage, even if the placenta takes a while. Now to answer the basic question of how long is too long, uh, 45 minutes or 60 minutes, I think a lot of midwives are comfortable with. And then beyond that time, they might start to get worried. And then if there's a lot of bleeding, many midwives are not afraid to get in there and do manual massage of the fundus. The uterus usually responds really well to touch um, and to see what's going on. If a home birth midwife encounters a situation where a manual placental extraction is probably going to be needed, many of them will choose to massage and hold the fundus so that it's firm and transport because something like that should probably be done in the hospital just because then you're going up into the uterus and there's a chance of infection and a lot of that going on. But that's usually not seen in a safe birth. I do. I, I want to answer your questions so you know what is done, what many midwives protocol is for a home birth. But the fact of the matter is, is when you don't disturb birth, usually something like that is not needed. And postpartum, your nurse or your midwife will even teach you how to massage the fundus if it feels quote unquote boggy in the days postpartum. So touching the fundus, the uterus, massaging that really is pretty effective if there's bleeding going on. And that's usually the first course of action, hopefully the first course of action for anybody, because it tends to be effective, even if other means uh, such as herbs or even at a hospital drugs or date fruit is very effective with postpartum hemorrhage or a chunk of placenta or whatever. And I've just done a big article on postpartum hemorrhage, so I'll link to that in the show notes too. Next question is, is there anything I can do to prevent tearing? This is the part of natural birth I absolutely hate. And I actually answered this question last night. I had a mama who's interested in my mama baby birthing classes, and she was asking me, did I have any information on tearing? And so I just answered her question right off the bat. And these are a few things that I told her. So again, that undisturbed birthing situation that I just outlined is really the cure for many of the complications of birth because birth is designed to work. We as a species are designed to be able to give birth and actually to give birth pretty easily. The whole, we're not apes, we walk on all you know, we walk on two feet instead of walking around on all fours and all that stuff. I, I really think that that's bunk because for a first time mom, you may be working with your baby a little bit to get through your bones, but even a first time mom can have a relatively smooth birth if it's undisturbed. There may be more work, your labor may be longer, but really babies are meant to come through the pelvis and the fetal ejection reflex is pretty strong in moms and will just kind of shoot that baby out in an undisturbed birth. 
So you want to honor that. And maybe talking about shooting the baby out when we're talking about tearing is a little bit scary. But the reality is, is, is there are many things that work to increase tears. Stress and tension do. And the cure for stress and tension, I really think, is being prepared. This is what I teach in my mama baby birthing classes is to be continually aware, especially in the last weeks of your pregnancy. Think to yourself right now while you're listening to this podcast. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're sitting in the car. Maybe you're running or walking your dog or maybe you're cooking dinner or maybe you're just sitting on a chair but think about it what do my pelvic muscles feel like right now so my glutes and the muscles if you were to you know clamp to hold back urine or something those muscles what do all those muscles feel like the muscles that uh that you feel when you orgasm what do all of those muscles feel like right now where I am what I'm doing so I'm sitting in my room recording a podcast and everything feels pretty relaxed to me. If you're jogging, it's going to feel more uptight. Uh, if you're trying to balance a toddler on your hip and pull a roast out of the oven while you're listening to this, you're probably going to feel pretty uptight. So if you notice different positions such as sitting Indian style or Taylor sitting uh, or squatting or standing or with your knees crossed over each other or with your ankles crossed what do those muscles feel like at that time just develop an awareness throughout the day and work on consciously relaxing because that's where your baby's going to come from or come through and it's beneficial to have those muscles relaxed at all points during your birthing time but it's especially beneficial when your baby's being born because you want to let those muscles and tissues be soft. And during Corwin's birth, my last baby's birth, I really experienced the ability to soften. Even as his head was coming through, I was consciously thinking to myself to soften those muscles. And it was a smooth, easy birth with no tearing. And I think that the conditioning that I did for that really helped a lot. And another good time to practice is when you're going potty. Just practice, quote unquote, letting it all hang out. Because the the sensation, especially of having a bowel movement, is similar to having a baby. The physical sensation you feel. So practicing that relaxation while you're doing that gives you many practice sessions all the way up to your baby's birthing time. Another tip is the position that you push in. Many women push in a semi-squatting position. In the bed with their legs up in stirrups at the hospital, which is really bad. It just really puts a lot of tension on those tissues that you don't want to tear. It's convenient for the doctor, but it's not good for your body. It's not optimal for your baby to work his or her way out. And even many women who choose to have a home birth or birth center birth, they end up in that semi-squatting position in the bed. And it's just not conducive to a good smooth birthing. And again, it puts a lot of pressure on those tissues. Positions that may be better are hands and knees, standing even, even though it may feel counterintuitive, but the, the tissues are able to be relaxed. And many women find that they're able to birth standing much more smoothly. It just helps get the baby through the bones. That's how I had my first baby. I haven't had any other standing, but and I had no tearing with her. And she wasn't she wasn't huge, but she wasn't a peanut either. She was 7 pounds, 14 ounces, so she was almost 8 pounds. So she was a pretty good-sized baby and no tearing. And I really think that many moms can have that same experience. And obviously, since I was standing, she was a land birth. Water birth does help minimize tearing, which we can touch on again in a minute. But 
uh, other positions that are helpful, my favorite birthing position that I've used for three babies now is to have one knee down and one leg up. And the knee down really grounds you and the leg up gives you a lot of flexibility to move with your baby and it helps to keep those pelvic muscles and all those pelvic tissues well relaxed. Uh, And then, of course, I said a water birth. So the tissues, the warm tissues... And just the counter pressure that's naturally in the water can help prevent tearing. Pushing when your body pushes can help prevent tearing. So don't do any coached pushing. No Valsalva maneuver, which is where your chin's tucked into your chest and you're holding your breath and then pushing to the count of 10. That's not a good thing. Push when your body pushes. If labor has been undisturbed, the fetal ejection reflex kicks in and your body's going to push the baby and it's undeniable and you push along with that and then you break when your body breaks and there's often a good long break between pushing contractions where you're, you're, you've got sky high levels of beta endorphin which help keep you kind of in that that la la land labor land feeling and that's good because especially with a first baby the baby's able to move back and move forward and even with subsequent babies it just gives you a break it gives your tissues a minute to break it gives you a minute to not be pushing and to focus on that constant relaxation also you can put your hand down there You can even reach up into the birth canal and feel the curve of your baby's head and feel the progress and just notice it and work on that inner relaxation. So those are a few tips to help not tear. And of course, during pregnancy, good nutrition helps keep plenty of blood flow and keeps tissues supple and all of that. And I've taught tons about nutrition lately, so I won't go into that. But that is something to keep in mind. Okay, I've had Pitocin with both of my kids with one because I hemorrhaged and with two because my contractions stop at nine. I also have contractions close and painful for days before my baby's been born. Do you think I need Pitocin or is there a natural substitute? So we talked about the hemorrhage already when I answered the first question. For moms who whose contractions stop, often the solution is that if you wait, things will resume. Check for stressors, check for things that are uncomfortable, remove things that are causing you to be stressed and uptight. You may try walking, moving, changing positions. That sort of thing can be really effective. Sometimes, even though you seem stuck and it seems like nothing is happening, baby is actually doing something inside of you. So baby may have been rotating or moving into a more optimal position, and that took time. Nobody could see that happening. But that's what was going on. And then when baby was optimally positioned, things would have resumed and everything would have moved smoothly from that point on. That's not always a given. Sometimes labor stalls and it wants to stay stalled. But usually a stalled labor is for some reason. And often it's not a stall. It's just a pause in the natural rhythm of labor. Managed labor's and textbook labors, I mean, they, they're expected to follow along a textbook curve at one centimeter an hour or whatever. But that's not always the reality that women experience. And the true reality from research is that women have widely varying labor patterns. And that often if a woman's labor seems slower or stopped altogether, it will stop. The real key is just keeping up your energy, working with things, working with your baby. I wrote an article on long labors recently too, and I'll also link to that because that one might be helpful for you. As for the contractions close and painful for days before your baby's born, the technical term for that's prodromal labor, which I really don't like. Um, 
I would recommend just doing what you can to relax, taking baths, you know, a warm bath with two cups of Epsom salts mixed in, talking to your baby, just thinking about, is my baby in a good position? Position could be the cause for that too, because baby's trying to move and just trying to go with the flow, keep your energy up, work with it. Make sure you're getting the nutrition that you need. Make sure you're getting the hydration that you need. Because food and water can cause, or lack of food and water can cause uterine contractions that are uncomfortable. But much of the time, that early labor isn't useless, even though we may feel like it is because it, res- it doesn't result in a baby. But there are changes going on. There are things happening with baby, with pelvis, with cervix, and all of that. And so it's not as useless as it feels. I would take what comfort measures you need to and check those main things like, am I eating enough? Am I drinking enough? Am I able to rest? Is there a lot of stress? And take the baths with magnesium. Apply topical magnesium because that really can help relax you and calm things down. Okay, I'm not pregnant, but in my previous C-section, the cord was wrapped twice and my OB said my sacral bone protrudes, which he saw once he was in there and said she wouldn't have fit underneath. Is there If I were to have another birth, would either of these decrease my chance or exclude me of a more natural second delivery? So the cord wrapped around the neck is essentially a non-issue, even if it's wrapped two or three or four times. Babies cords have what's called Wharton's jelly in them, and it's it's really very protective of the cords, of the veins and the arteries in the cord, or there, you know, there's three vessels in the cord, and it's very protective of those. Um So that compression is very hard to do, even when it's wrapped around the baby's neck. And babies can be born vaginally with cords around their neck. They can be born vaginally with no problem. It can be unlooped naturally by mom. Even babies with the cords around their neck multiple times can generally somersault out of their mom's bodies with it around their neck and then it be unwound. So really there is no evidence that shows that's a problem, even though it's commonly cited as a problem. Your second question about the sacral bones, this is something where the pink kit is really useful and I recommend the pink kit even to the students who are taking my mama baby birthing classes because it teaches you so much about your pelvis. I talk about the pelvis and mama baby birthing, uh, but I don't go into the level of detail as the pink kit does because that's pink kit territory. But really, your body is super flexible and your sacrum is super flexible. Now, if you've had an injury to your tailbone, then there may be something else going on there. Um, And the coccyx is the tailbone and it's at the very base of the sacrum. But the plate of your sacrum, I mean, if you put your hand on the small of your back and then go down to where you feel that large plate that's just above your tailbone, that's actually flexible. It's not solidly anchored to your pelvic bones on either side. There's cartilage in between those and it's flexible. And it may not be very flexible, but usually it has enough flex to get a baby through there. And babies are very good at working their way through pelvic bones. The pink kit has... An example that I think is one of the most powerful examples of this concept, where if you take your two fingers and you squeeze them together, right now your thumb and your forefinger, it's hard to move when you're squeezing as hard as you possibly can. But if you let up that pressure just a little bit, they slide right over each other. And if you didn't just do that when I was talking about it, do it right now. Do it again, even if you've heard me say it on previous podcasts, because I'm fairly sure that I have. But you let off that little bit of pressure and created that much room 
for your fingers to slide over each other. And that same thing can make a difference for your baby. Now, there are birth stories where it takes a while to get babies through bones, where mamas, especially first-time mamas, really have to work. And since your first baby was born via cesarean, there's a good chance that you are still going to have to work because your bones still need to be spread. But I I read a story from a mom recently who was a first-time mom. She had a really long labor. She almost felt like going up, giving up. She was planning to go to the hospital. I can link to her birth story. Um, And so she was dressed to go to the hospital, and then something just told her that she could really do this. But she really had to push and work with her baby to get her baby past the sacrum and under the pubic bone. But her baby was born safely at home with her all dressed to go to the hospital. And that, that, but that sort of thing, it's not unusual. I mean, even if it takes work to get the baby through your bones, you can do it. And choosing a good position is a key. We said a few minutes ago that that semi-squatting position, especially with your legs up in stirrups, that compresses the sacrum. It pushes it up into the birth canal opening. It literally creates a smaller birth birthing opening because it pushes the sacrum and the coccyx up towards the pubic bone and compresses the pelvic inlet and the pelvic outlet. So you want to do things like get in a standing position, which can really help move the baby through the bones, or get on all fours or a semi-squat position, or not a semi-squat, a squat. So a squat, a supported squat is what I want to say, where your tailbone and your coccyx are free to move, or the kneeling position, it's also called the runner's pose, that I said was my favorite birthing position. All of those create a lot more room. And if you need to work to get a baby through your bones, you're going to want to work with your baby, which is going to require moving with your baby into a position where your baby can navigate down through those bones. All right. I do not want to be induced, and hopefully it won't come to this, but I'm already starting to worry about that a little bit. Induction is a huge topic, and I've read, or I've taught so much in my mama baby birthing classes for mamas who are worried about induction. Oxytocin is the hormone that kickstarts labor. There are lots of others that work in an orchestra during labor, but oxytocin is the primary one, and it, it really usually works to kick off labor, but so many moms are so stressed out at the end of their birthing time, especially if they want a natural birth and they know that the big bad induction is looming. And that in and of itself is enough to kill oxytocin and kill labor from starting. So the very best thing that I advise is that you relax and enjoy the last few weeks of your pregnancy. Build routines into your life where you can relax, where you can settle down, where you can just wait for your baby. So take warm baths or the magnesium baths. I love magnesium baths. They're one of the most relaxing things I can think of. That's with the Epsom salts in there. Or read good books. Watch cheesy comedy movies. Uh, Take your pet for casual walks. Sit with your cat or your lap dog in your lap and just enjoy them. Watch your toddler being precious as they play cook a good meal or for me an oxytocin booster is a huge filling meal that somebody else cooked so if you can arrange that do that just do what you need to do to take care of yourself to pamper yourself to get those hormones flowing make love to your hubby cuddle snuggle kiss hug hug your kids eight times a day all of those things are big oxytocin boosters and those will help you go into labor when you need to talking to your baby thinking about your baby 
folding and refolding baby things, getting things ready for baby, that tends to be a big oxytocin booster too. You want to do what you need to do to be relaxed and that is a good thing that will help labor begin on its own. Being well nourished is also really important because the uterus needs nourishment to kick labor into gear, to establish a good labor pattern. All of that is dependent on nutrition and again hydration is a good thing to focus on too. There have been studies, and I think that I mentioned this, I might have mentioned this on the diet podcast, but there have been a lot of studies done on dates, as in the fruit dates, not dates that you go on with your hubby, though those will boost oxytocin. But women who eat dates are far less likely to need induction. So four to five dates a day from 36 weeks on, I think almost all of the women, it was almost 100%, something like 96 or 97% of the women went into, went into labor spontaneously and needed no induction. And that's just a quick thing. I think it's fascinating. Dates also decrease, decrease the risk of postpartum bleeding and lead to lower postpartum bleeding overall. Um, or they decrease the risk of postpartum hemorrhage and lead to lower postpartum bleeding overall. But if you want to pick up some dates and have a date or two, two or three or five every day for your last few weeks of pregnancy. Those have been proven to really help. They also have been shown to reduce the chances of premature rupture of membranes. So they're kind of just a miracle fruit. It's really amazing. So those are some tips just in a nutshell because we're getting to the end of this. But uh, those are some tips to help minimize the chances of needing an induction. And remember that expectant management and waiting has been proven to be pretty safe. And that goes beyond the scope of what we can get into right now. But trusting in your baby and your body that things will get started and doing sensible things can really make a difference. Okay, and then our final question I'll, I, I will address really quickly. She's talking about she had a big hemorrhage, so we already talked about hemorrhage, but she's had anemia since giving birth. And what do you suggest? And she also asks, is there anything I should help to be prepared with bleeding during and after labor? And I already talked about the preventing postpartum hemorrhage. And then being super well nourished is going to go a long way to that. You should read the postpartum hemorrhage article I'm going to put in the show notes because it will really help you understand why nutrition is vital in postpartum hemorrhage. And I don't have time to get into all that. But your nutrition is also going to help you with your anemia during pregnancy. I would definitely make sure you're eating meats. I would have liver once a week. If you really don't like liver, you can mix it in with something else. A lot of women find it works well in spaghetti sauce or tacos. So they have a pound of ground meat and then a quarter pound of liver, and that helps them get it in. Other women, me included, like to cut up liver into little pill-sized pieces and flash freeze that, then put that all in a bag and just swallow a few every day like a medicine. Some women can't tolerate even that or the mixed liver, so they'll take desiccated liver supplements. That's a really powerful way to combat anemia. Slight anemia is normal in the third trimester of pregnancy because the blood volume has expanded so much so the iron levels are just diluted but you don't want to be super low in iron. Um, Floridix is a brand name of an herbal iron or liquid chlorophyll. Those are plant-based sources of iron that tend to be very effective for many women. I would definitely say that nutritional intervention with real things are going to make the biggest difference for you. So liver and all, you know, all red meats that have plenty of iron. Also egg yolks have a lot of iron in them, but liver is really going to be a powerhouse for so, on so many levels for you and your baby nutritionally. And then the herbal sources like Floridix or the liquid chlorophyll are also very effective. 
Iron pills from your doctor are probably not going to make a huge difference and they tend to be really constipating. Definitely go for the food sources. Also take in vitamin C rich foods when you have your iron. That's one of the reasons why the liver and the spaghetti sauce works real well is because tomato sauce tends to be high in vitamin C or eat your eggs with a few orange slices, that sort of thing, because vitamin C enhances the absorption of iron. So that's something practical you can do. And these food-based approaches will really build up the iron level in your blood so that you're ready. And then you can read the article to explore how to minimize the chances of postpartum hemorrhage or even excessive postpartum bleeding. Remember to eat your dates. And And it also talks a lot about other nutrition, why having an expanded blood volume is so vital and why that will give you extra blood on board. So even when you do bleed after birth, which it's natural to bleed a little bit, about a pint, but it doesn't have that big of an impact on you if you have a fully expanded blood supply. So definitely read that article. That was all the questions that I had gotten on birth complications, so I only went a few minutes over the 30-minute mark to get to all of those, and I'm really excited that I managed to get all of them in. I, I will look over my the rest of my Q&A questions, uh, and we may do some more Q&A episodes. I think next week, though, we're going to have a guest on the podcast, and I'm really excited about that. And we're going to talk some baby stuff, which I'm really excited about because we've been talking a lot of pregnancy and birth lately. So we will talk baby and have a guest, hopefully with her next week, and then we'll probably continue a few more Q&As, and then we'll turn our attention to a few more things. But I look forward to sharing with you. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you have, remember, I love getting feedback from you. I love hearing that the podcast has made an impact on your life. I love hearing students say, oh, I found you through the podcast, Kristen. And so if you will let me know if you've got feedback, leave comments on iTunes or in Stitcher. Please, please, please take a minute to leave a rating if this podcast, uh, if you like the podcast, leave a rating. And if there's a way I can improve, be sure to share that with me too. But leaving ratings, leaving comments really helps other mamas and daddies, other families find the podcast. So please take a minute to give it a boost. Let's help other mamas and daddies get touched by the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you're in the United States this week, have a happy Thanksgiving. And no matter where you are in the world, blessings to you and your family and I will talk to you next week thanks for listening to the birth baby and life podcast with Kristen Burgess for great resources and tons more info visit www.birthbabylife.com visit www.birthbabylife.com